Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. This week uh, marks a milestone in American history and the history of the United States Senate as Harry Reid takes his leave uh, from the Senate after three decades, uh, the last decade of which uh, he spent as uh, Democratic leader. A few days before his farewell address, uh, to the Senate, I met with Senator Reid behind the Senate chambers uh, to reflect on his life and career. Senator Reid, it's, it's an honor to be here. You have an amazing story, really an amazing story. It's sort of a, the quintessentially American story. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just talk about that for a little bit, about sure. Searchlight and your your uh, your early years and that incredible journey that got you to where we are today. So uh, t- tell me about that. First of all, talk a little bit about Searchlight and what that was like. Well, for many, many years, um, I was kind of embarrassed. I don't know if shame is the right word, but never talked about Searchlight. I was always from Nevada. I was from Las Vegas. And one of the moving experiences of my life, I went to University of Nevada at Reno where they had a foundation dinner and the speaker was Alex Haley. A long time ago, he, he, the guy that Author wrote... Author of Roots. Yeah, yeah the guy the man that wrote Roots. And it was a stunningly important speech for me because he talked about how important one's roots are. And he said, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't get away from them. They're, you're, you're, they're, they're, they're who you are. And so I left that dinner that night and... Um, said, he's right. And so from that day forward, like overnight, I became proud of being from Searchlight. So why run from it? You know, the fact that my parents weren't educated. Uh, my dad didn't graduate from the eighth grade. My mom didn't graduate from high school. We had no inside toilet, no hot water. It wasn't much, I didn't think so at the time. I didn't worry about it, but it wasn't much of a house as I reflect back on it. One teacher taught all eight grades. Um, and the town mine, itself mine, was mine, it. Mine, mining was gone. Yeah. At one time, Searchlight was a thriving metropolis, bigger than Las Vegas. It had so modern. Had By the turn of the 20th century, it had electricity. It had uh, telephone, telegraph, fire equipment. It was at everything. When I grew up there during World War II, it was nothing. It was a boom town, mining town. And the railroad was gone. Everything was gone. We had nothing. No telephones. There was nothing. Prostitution, right, was a... Yeah, we, when I grew up there, mining was gone. Uh, we, the, um, I, during any... That one time I was there as a boy in Searchlight, we had 13 brothels in one, <laughs> that little town. So 
uh, I accepted that. That's who I am. And why uh, were you why why were you embarrassed to talk about it? Well, you know, I didn't want. You know, I can remember taking my wife now, my wife, uh, my girlfriend, over there, and you know, it was hard to do. She had to go to the bathroom. She she was from a big city, born in L.A. I mean, how would you like to walk uh, 75, 80 yards down to go to the toilet in the middle of the night? You know, it's uh, in the dark. Uh, you know, we had no store. It, you know, it was, it was um, at the time at least. Uh, so it wasn't anything I... Did you know, and, did, and, and, and I gather it wasn't, your, the, your home life wasn't, uh, you wrote about this, was, was not uh, all that harmonious either. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, but again, that's, you know, I, I, <clears throat> tomorrow I'm going to give a, or day after tomorrow, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. soon I'm going to give a speech, my final speech here in the Senate. And I've been debating, I'm going to talk about health care a little bit, and how one of the things I'm very happy I did is work with Obama getting health care passed, and it was hard. <clears throat> but uh, I was there, and you were valiant, was, uh, by yeah, the way, in, we, in that we, cause. Um, one of the things I'm tr- working through in my mind here, you know, I, we had no health care, none, zero. Uh, we, were, we were born, my brother and I were born in a house, no doctor, no hospital, um, My mother, once a TV wagon came through town to take chest x-rays, and that's the only time I ever remember, and hers came back positive that she had TB. Never went to the doctor. I worried about that so much for my mother. I can't imagine how much she worried. It must have been a false positive. Uh, my mom's teeth uh, fell out. My dad had pretty good teeth, but, you know, he had, when they bothered him, pulled him with a pair of pliers, he'd pull his own teeth out. Uh, but what I'm debating here, in my own mind, and we can talk about it here, I guess, a little in front of your audience, um, my father committed suicide. As did mine, by the way, so I, <clears throat> no, I didn't I'm know sensitive that. to that. Yeah. And I can remember getting that call from my mother, driving out to Searchlight that took me a while to get there, 60 miles away, and seeing my dad there uh, on that bed, blood all over, um, he, as, I, as we look back, he's a man who was t- depressed his whole life. A little bit of health care would have saved his life. So anyway, I don't know if I'll talk about that, but you know that health care is a big deal to me, and we didn't have it there. So yeah, there were a lot of things that were about Searchlight that uh, were hard for me to accept, but I accepted them. You know, I just have to say this. Um, when I didn't talk about my father's suicide for 30 years. and my, I- Mine was almost that long. And and you probably found what I did when I started, when I talked about, I wrote about it. I got more response to that than anything I had ever written. People mine, so mine, want to be able to talk about these Mine came in a very public things. way. I was doing a hearing with, and the aging committee chaired by Republican Senator Cohen from Maine. Yes, and um, the famous journalist Mike Wallace was testifying yeah. there. The hearing was on senior depression, and he said uh, on my assignments for. Many years, I wanted to die. I, was, I would go to the worst assignments hoping I'd, something would happen to me. He said, but you know, now I'm okay. Because I see, he said, I talk to somebody once in a while. I take a little bit of pill once in a while. I'm good. I want to live forever. And I, that's, when I, that's when I publicly said my dad killed himself. And I think we should have a hearing on senior suicide, which we did. 
Yeah. And now we've done, I've done a lot. Well, thank and you so, for that. So just like you, once I did it, it was good. It was good. I was no longer so many people as you were are aware 32,000 people at least kill themselves every year. Mm-hmm. There are thousands and thousands car accidents, uh, boating accidents, gun accidents. They're really suicides, but we don't count them as that. So um, we need to accept the fact that uh, it's, a, it's a malady, you know, early on that you couldn't be buried in a cemetery with most people. Yes. Um, it was a, it's something that was cleansing to my soul to finally talk about it. Yes, I, I, I share that with you. <clears throat> you got out of Searchlight, and uh, I know that Searchlight didn't have a high school. You had to go. To, you had a hitchhike to Henderson mm-hmm. uh, to go to high school, forty miles away. Were Forty-six you de- miles, right, to be exact. Uh, you always could count, Senator. I, so I, I take you at your word that it's forty-six uh, miles. Did you uh, always? Did you have the? Did you have a determination that you were going to get beyond searchlight? That you were going to find a life somewhere else? Yeah, I think I did. I honestly think I did. I don't know why, but I think I did. I my, I had two older brothers, and they were much older than I, ten and twelve years old, and um, they, they weren't in searchlight, and um, yeah, I, there wasn't even even as a little boy, I could under, see there wasn't much there. And you came under the guidance of someone who became a major political figure in Nevada, but was your teacher and boxing yeah, coach. You know, it's important to, to recognize uh, people as you're growing up who are willing to help you. <clears throat> and I have been good. I have good fortune all these years to have a few people who really reached out to me. One was a man taught me high school in my senior year, he was became my mentor. Uh, he was a, an exemplary human being to me. I've never known a more honest person than Michael Callahan. He went to mass every day. He was a religious man. Now he was a, maybe not the stereotype religious man. He had a foul mouth. He used it sometimes, but he was honest beyond description, and he taught me a lot. And I always loved the man. I mean, he was so good to me. He he uh, he was your boxing coach. He was the one who introduced you to boxing. Yep, he did that. He uh, and he was a history teacher. Is that what he was? Yes, and mm-hmm. again, history and government. When I came back to take the bar in Nevada, I'd petitioned the court to let me take it early. I hadn't graduated from law school. He met me at the airport in Reno and gave me a fifty dollar bill. I'd never seen one before. He just took took care of me the best he could. He was on a, he was on a military pension. And he became the governor of Nevada. The most popular political figure in the history of Nevada. Incredible. You were uh, you, you how old were you when you ran for the legislature? Well, my first job politically was city attorney of Henderson. It was a part-time job. I was 23 or 24. I ran for county board a couple years later, state legislature a couple years later, and then I was a lieutenant governor a couple years later. Why did you run for public office? What did you see in public office that attracted you? When I came over from Searchlight to go to high school, um, when I was a junior, I had the most important election of my life. I was elected junior class treasurer. Now, that may not sound like much to anyone, but for me, that was a big deal. I had been accepted by my peers. A 
boy who just a few years earlier had come over, my clothes weren't right, my hair wasn't right. And <coughs> excuse me, these kids from this big school, at least in my mind, had accepted me. And so uh, then I uh, did the impossible. I ran against somebody who had been freshman class president, sophomore class president, junior class president, uh, for student body president. Frankly, a couple of girls came to me and said, why don't you run? I can't beat Russell. Because <laughs> uh, he was a better athlete than I. He was a genius. And But I won. I was I was student, student body president. I love that. It was so much fun. And um, so I was a freshman class president in college, sophomore class president, as I recall. And then I got married. So that ended my school election process. So I just had it kind of in my blood. And I went to law school back here in Washington, and I was surrounded by politics. And so I went home, got involved. We should stop there before you come back to Nevada. You had a you had a job when you were going to law school that we should know. I was a capital policeman. I was here, uh, carried a gun. Uh, I would like to tell your audience about all the heroic things I did. The most dangerous thing I did was direct traffic. Uh, <laughs> what, what, from that era when you were a uh, Capitol policeman, do you remember some of the political figures? Oh, who- yes. Yeah, oh, sure. I was here. Kennedy's body was lying in state. I walked around that. I looked out the door here to watch uh, the gathering for Dr. King and his famous speech. Um, I didn't realize there were that many buses in the world, hmm. let alone that many buses that came to Washington. I uh, can remember just a few feet from where we're now recording this. Um, I was signed at this call, the Ohio clock, and out comes Everett Dirksen. This, oh, he looked like a senator. His long white hair. Yes, from Illinois. And he was there to talk about the Russians who'd exploded a hydrogen bomb. So no, I have a lot of memories of. Uh, did that did that further kind of fire your interest in politics? I mean, you were you were surrounded by living history. Well, frankly, no. I I hated Washington. It was the most <laughs> miserable experience. It, you know, I went. I worked um, five or six days a week. I went to school full time, daytime, worked nights. Um, we had all these great plans. Um, we were going to pay a salary here as a patronage employee, a police officer. But it was so, the cost of living was so high here. It was a tough thing for Lander and me. We had, a, we had a baby, another baby. We had two children. I was never home. I never wanted to see this place. <laughs> but I came back. You did. You did indeed, and you stayed for a while. When you went back to Nevada, then uh, then I, I, I interrupted you in the middle of the narrative. You went back to Nevada, and, and then the, your political career began pretty quickly after that. Yes, it did, very quickly. Yeah. And it, uh, but it ended also. I was, in 1974, uh, I was elected to... I was thought I would be elected to the Senate, the United States Senate, but I lost by 524 votes to Paul Axel. And he's a wonderful man. I can't say anything bad about him, but I gave the election away. Um, How's that? Well, I'd never been defeated anything. I thought, you know, I was, um, how could, you know, it was a good year for Democrats. And it was I just, a Watergate year. And I just uh, t- 
attack everybody as part of who I thought I was. It was just a, it was not a good campaign. In fact, the governor's chief of staff, we met, um, I talked about the governor, O'Callaghan was the governor. I was his, his lieutenant governor. And um, after the debacle of my campaign, uh, it was in the press that said, Harry Reid's going to take his kids to Disneyland. The governor's chief of staff said, why would he go to Disneyland had Donald Duck and Goofy running his campaign? <laughs> <laughs> Did you, um, you were 30 years old when you were, a lute- when you were elected right. lieutenant uh-huh. governor. So you were 34 when you right. ran for the Senate. Mm-hmm. Right. And looking back, you know, I know Churchill uh, said to Lady Clementine when she said his defeat was a blessing in disguise, he said, well, it's rather well disguised. But do you, when you look back at your defeat in 74, did you learn things that were valuable to you in the future? Or, I mean, it, you probably well, would have rather the less, not have the lesson. But. Yeah, I'd rather not have the lesson, but of course. Um, I had people come to me and say, you know, things always work out for the best. I didn't believe them. But maybe this did. I'm not sure that I would have been as effective then as I am now. I was able to go for those uh, few years I wasn't here. I practiced law. I did quite well. Um, Vegas was growing and booming like it was, and I'd invested in some land for not much money, and it made it my life back here much easier when I came back with my children, my little wife. And um, no, I think that I accept the fact that maybe it did work out for the best. You uh, you took an assignment from the governor after you were defeated. That turned out to be quite an experience. Yeah, he, he my friend Michael Callahan, uh, trusted me with anything, uh, with any and everything, and he asked me to be chairman of the gaming commission. And I thought that would be fine. It was a took a lot of time, um, but I. Still was able to practice law, but it was a very difficult time in the history of the state of Nevada. They, we, uh, we didn't, we, none, no one in Nevada knew, or if they did, I didn't know, about the organized crime influence in Nevada. I thought I knew everything about Nevada. <clears throat> I'd set up the meeting with the governor, Governor O'Callaghan, with Howard Hughes. I met with all the Mormon mafia that surrounded Hughes. He had six Mormons and one Catholic that took care of him 24 hours a day. Met with all of them, setting up the meeting. Uh, I had, I just really understood. I thought gaming, but I didn't. I didn't know anything. And uh, how pervasive was the mob influence? Well, <clears throat> it was quite pervasive. We found three hotels were controlled out of the mob in Kansas City. We had one hotel controlled out of mob out of Detroit, and then we had others from around. I can't believe Chicago wasn't represented. But well, you, yeah, Chicago came. Um, <laughs> Chicago, of course, had Spilatro, who was eventually murdered. Right. We had Frank Rosenthal, who had ties uh, Florida and Chicago. Uh, he was bad. That's a movie. The, the movie that was made of him, which um, I wouldn't watch, uh, called uh, Casino, or mm-hmm. what I think it was the name of it. I wouldn't watch it um, because it would it, it glamorized the a real bad man by the name of Frank Rosenthal. So, um, you know, they tried to kill me a couple times, put a bomb on our car. Uh, before I came back here, I started my cars with uh, like a little uh, garage door opener. You'd press that and search the car for a bomb, no bomb, and start the car. 
So, how'd your family, how'd your wife process that? Just like she processes all the stuff that I do now. You know, we've had some problems also back here, different reasons, I guess. But no, she's been a real trooper. You know, she just, she with my, it, it was, <clears throat> especially my youngest son, it was it was hard on him, just a little boy looking out the window of her home in Las Vegas and the fire trucks there and searching, you know, that was the bomb. And they went up, people stayed with us and covered our, windows with our picture windows with so people couldn't see in it was a did you find yourself saying why did i take this job <clears throat> yes but you also find yourself saying you know <clears throat> you can't let them you can't let them win well and you didn't you 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 actually uh turned in someone who tried to to bribe you yeah that was another issue that was another part of organized crime <laughs> uh that was a bad bad guy he was he was very bad. And there's no doubt that he's the one to put the bomb on the car. Had it done, he should have paid a little more because it didn't do a very good job. It didn't go off. Uh, <laughs> and um, what, but th- there's a famous incident in which you were wired by the federal government, and you went in to talk to this guy who was trying to bribe you, and uh, you you you, you kind of let your well, temper what, get what, away from. What happened there is um, this was very very difficult. Uh, because if there's one thing I don't like, it's rats, you know, and snitches, okay? Uh, but I wasn't, I, what I had done, somebody contacted me, and I thought, wow, oh, this is wrong. And so I'd worked with the FBI, and these people were to give me the money for the bribe. And it was quite a while ago, and they didn't have the technological equipment they have now. But they, had, they sent in from Detroit the strike force there, uh, a little attache case, just stuck it against the wall, and it took a picture of everything in the room. That was my law office. And um, the deal was, I would say, is this the money? I know I would say, this is the money? And they would, FBI would come and arrest the three people. Well, they'd lock the door behind them. And so, you know, this was touchy. And so I worked around, got the door open, and then... Um, I became, first of all, this man, his name was Jack Gordon, a very, very bad man. I just became, in a very short period of time, furious. They thought they could bribe me. So I just uh, put a chokehold on him, and they had to pull me off him. I would have heard, it, was, they, it was a good thing they did. And did he? was he then prosecuted? Oh, yeah, they all went to jail. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, you, you, as much as you disliked Washington, you came back. Oh, yeah, sure. What made you decide to, to run for Congress? Well, for a number of reasons. One is that um, I wanted to show everybody that I could do it. Nevada had a new congressional seat for the first time for, from 1864 to 82. 1982, we only had one congressional seat, so we had two. And I... Um, Thought it would be a good experience for me and for my family, and it really was. It was for my uh, three. My we call them our little kids. I had two children, then three more. We call them the little kids. It was a great experience for everybody. And then, and then you ran for the Senate in '86, right? Uh, At Laxalt, to retired, and I ran. When you got here, um, who were the 
thinking back to the Senate then, how was the Senate then as compared to now, 30 years later? Well, you always look back and things are always better in the past than the future, but uh, the truth is that it was a wonderful time in the history of the country. Uh, we had senators work together, Democrats and Republicans. We had the great Mark Hatfield, Republican. We had the great, uh, say this without any reservation whatsoever, uh, John Chafee from Rhode Island. What a wonderful man he was. D'Amato from New York was good. Heinz from Pennsylvania, terrific man. So, uh, you know, I could name Danforth from Missouri. These were all people you could work with and get things done. Um, and filibusters were extremely rare. To give you an example of how things changed, during the six years Lyndon Johnson was my successor, he was the majority leader for six years, he um, had to overcome one, maybe two filibusters. My first six years, more than 500. So that's how things have changed. What about, um, you named some Republicans. If you, uh, over the 30-year span that you've been here, if you had to name the the best senator, the most impactful senator. Well, the best legislator was uh, David Pryor from Arkansas. Hmm. He's a person who didn't give a lot of speeches, but he was a legislator first class. He was terrific. Um, but I have served with some wonderful people, Fritz Hollings from uh, South Carolina, uh, one of my successors, uh, predecessors, I should say, um, Senator from Maine, George Mitchell. What a terrific man he was. Really a good, good person. Um, there were good people. I mean, we had <clears throat> so many people that I looked up to. Uh, John, John Glenn, how about him? As we speak, John Glenn is quite ill, very, very sick. Um, we hope he makes it for a while longer. But he was good. I just on and on with these Ted Kennedy, just all these people, and they were not a single one of them. They were all good to me. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Senator Harry Reid. What makes what made you you named all of these figures who were who who with great great reverence and respect? What made them great legislators? <clears throat> First of all, legislation the art of compromise. Every one of them were willing to make a deal. And that's how we get things done, is we compromise. You want this, I want this, I can't give you that, you can't give me this, well, let's see what we can work out. And that's what we used to do. But right now it's, no, we'll do it this way, we'll do it this way, no. Yeah, you know, um, I asked you about the Senate. I guess I should also ask you how politics has changed because um, – the nature of politics is different now in that it's not just within this chamber that compromise is difficult to achieve, but compromise is uh, disdained by vo- uh, by voters, in, in some in both parties, actually. Uh, how do you overcome that? Well, I think if if we were able to take, for example, this... <clears throat> One reason we have the appropriation processes fallen apart, 
We don't have earmarks anymore. What is an earmark? It's congressionally directed spending, something that the Constitution says we're supposed to do. So we've had no appropriation process. And that's what I'm talking about, the compromise, the working together. Do you that's think if you had, and by the way, I, I, people ask me, do I have regrets from my time here? I was one of those people who favored the elimination of and, earmarks. And I, and I, one of the few things I disagreed with the president, and I said so publicly, lots of times, I disagreed. I think it was a, it was a, led to the, one of the ways, excuse me, this body deteriorated. Uh, did it make your I, job as leader I, I, I harder? I also think it. I only am. I can only think of two things I disagreed with the president: earmarks and making a big deal out of lobbyists. Just earning a living. I mean, what what's what's the deal there? Yeah, they're still, you know, the object of a great I deal of. I just don't uh, understand it. It w- but in terms of your job as the leader, you know, people talk about Lyndon Johnson, and he obviously was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had enormous uh, gifts. But he also had enormous gifts to distribute as well. Uh, what, what does it do to leaders in Congress uh, that you don't have earmarks or, or anything really to offer? Well, I, I, I believe that uh, it's exaggerated the lack of power that a leader has. I, I really don't believe that. I think that someone who's a majority leader or the minority leader has a lot more power than people give them credit for. Uh, they like to say they don't have a lot of power. It gets them out of doing some, gives them an excuse. But uh, I think they have a lot more power than people give them credit for. Then where does the, the lack of earmarks hurt? <clears throat> well, that's one thing that's hurt because one of the ways this body operated so well <clears throat> is because we had 12, sometimes 13 appropriation bills. <clears throat> and it was through those bills that people better understood what was going on in their state. The reason earmarks is not a good idea, why would a member of Congress want to relegate their authority to the White House, all those bureaucracies? It's not good. I think I have a better ju- I am a better judge of what's good for Nevada than somebody in the hit some bureaucrat hidden in the bowels of the Department of Energy. So um, I disagreed with that from the very beginning and I think it helps the camaraderie here for people to work together. There, there's nothing being done wrong, dishonest. You have to, you know, the law is very clear. If it's, you have to indicate um, what, who benefits from the earmark. Did anybody request it? If you, if you, uh, you know, all this stuff is easy mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. What, uh, when you think about the things that you've worked on, you mentioned health care movingly uh, earlier. What were the things that you were proudest of that you were able to work on and achieve? Well, I, first of all, have had the good fortune of working with, in a limited sense, with President Carter, very limited sense with, with President Reagan, uh, George Bush Sr., wonderful man. I got along with him well. As most everyone knows, I have, did not get along at all with George Bush II. He was a very pleasant man, but I just didn't agree with his policy. Um, Bill Clinton was a good president. But the joy of my life politically has been working with Obama. The history books will do a better job than what has taken place now, but he will go down in history as one of America's great presidents. You know, uh, you know that I've been friends with him for 25 years, and I was with him along the way, and I never forget when he called me and said, I just had this uh, really surprising conversation with Harry Reid, this was when he was in the Senate, 
who said I ought to think about running for president. And uh, I was kind of taken aback uh, by that. And he said, but I guess I, I need to at least think about it because Harry's a serious guy. And what, what, uh, what provoked you to, uh, to call in this guy who had been in the Senate for, I guess, two years at the First time? First of all, of it was his ability to communicate. He was a gifted writer and a gifted orator. And I write this in a book. I had a book that I wrote. And I talk about going to Obama on the Senate floor. No one's there. It's quorum calls take place. He's sitting down. He had just given a speech. And I walked up to him and I said, uh, Brock, you know, I'll tell you, that was really a good speech. I mean, that was very, very good. And without a bit of conceit, without a bit of, he was not boastful. He looked at me in the most sincere way. I can still see him doing that. He said, Harry, you know, I have a gift. <laughs> well, it's true. And so I watched him a little bit. And so I thought, for a lot of reasons, it was the time. For someone that was young, and I frankly thought that it was an asset that he was a person of color. And I told him that. I think he was kind of uh, shocked that I told him this. But it was nobody around. I was just doing it because I thought that was the right thing to do. And... Um, but you, so, you, 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 so, you, you, I know how you, I know you have high regard for uh, for then Senator Clinton, Secretary oh, sure, Clinton. Sure. She was the front runner at the time, so this must have been a very. You must have thought about this hard before you intervened just, between I, two members. You had other was, members running as well. It was just something I thought he should take a look at, and he did. And I, I, I repeat what I said earlier. It's been a, such a experience for me to be, in effect, his point guy here for eight years. Um, John Cornyn said out here, I just got a question with the press. He said, I've done such an awful job. Republicans don't like me. And I said, well, you know, being Obama's point person, I wasn't trying to see how, uh, how I could please the Republicans. I was seeing what I could do for America, and that's what I did with Obama. And we did some wonderful things. Uh, Wall Street reform, we did that. That wasn't it. wasn't hard. It wasn't easy. It was hard. The stimulus, oh, that was so hard. Uh, we should have done more. We did the best we could. We only had 58 senators. I went to get um, a couple of Republicans every time. We uh, did Obamacare. Listen to what these Republicans are talking about doing. Repealing it. What are they? What is wrong with them? What is wrong with them? People still, with tears in their eyes, some of them had real tears the first six months or so. Debbie, she's had diabetes since she's two years old. I can, she can get insurance now. I mean, on and on with these stories about Obamacare, people, and with my being raised where I was, when no one had the ability to go to a doctor, this meant a lot to me. So we did so much. We accomplished more of that first Congress um, than... Roosevelt did his first Congress. And then ugly partisanship stepped in, and McConnell, to his credit, told the truth. He said, we have two goals. Number one, we're going to defeat Obama for re-election. They lost that. Number two, we're going to oppose everything Obama tries to do, and they did that. They've done it now for all these years, the Obama administration. Think how much more we could have done had they been constructive rather than destructive. 
You know, uh, Senator McConnell said in uh, 2010 that, and I think it was, he was talking about the health care bill, but more broadly that we made a decision. You know, as you remember, Obama ran for president promising uh, that he would uh, uh, try and bring people together. He, uh, and McConnell said we didn't put, we didn't want to put any Republican votes on some of this stuff because it would have been, it would have suggested that he had figured it out and that, and uh, that wouldn't have been good for us. Do you think that it was mostly a strategic decision on the part of the Republicans to oppose Obama? Was it a principal decision on issues? How much did race that's, have to do with so it? That's so easy for me to answer. They made a decision. All the Republicans in the country who were in a position of leadership agreed, oppose everything he tries to do. Everything. And they've done that. It's been without any hesitation. Well, you know, I've talked about a couple of things I disagreed with the president. One of the things I... I tried to be patient, and I was. He tried so hard, so hard to try to work something out with him. He tried it year after year until finally he comes to one of his State of the Union and says, I can't do that anymore. You're not helping me at all. And as a result of that, I still use left-handed. I still have a pen, mm-hmm. and I'm going to start using it. And he did. And uh, that's why I think you go down as one of America's great presidents. Do you, do you think race had something to do with it, or was this purely well, a strategic decision? You know, that's uh, I, I, you know, he doesn't say it, and I don't say it. People draw their own conclusion. I'm not asking if you say it. I'm asking if you think it. <laughs> I think my silence speaks a volume. Um, what happens? For, well, let me just ask you one you question know, they, about this. They, 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 they felt he was an illegitimate president. Forget about where, he, where they say he was born. Uh, they just thought it was illegitimate. How could this man be president of our country? Do you, uh, if a Repu- the Republican, if a Republican was sitting here, they'd say, "Well, Harry Reid was tough on Bush," and you acknowledge that you didn't like where he was going. He he was the one who started all this. Is that how would you respond to that? That those years, those were very tough years. Listen, with we Bush? we helped Bush get a lot done. No child left behind. Who was that? That was him. We did a lot working Tarp. with Bush. We took care of all of his judges. Yeah. We did it. We took good care of him. But I didn't like him privatizing Social Security and a few other things. Where is it going to go now? I mean, what would you advise your, and I guess you will advise your colleagues as you take leave of here, should they employ uh, the same tactics uh, against this president? And, and what's your, you've been pretty blunt about your feelings about Donald Trump. Um, well, I, I, here's how I believe. You know, the last two years when we've had a Republican majority in the Senate, they've been able to pass a few things. Why? Because we work with them. Now, every one of them were things that we tried to do, but they filibustered them. So when we had a chance to pass them, we didn't oppose them. So I would say to my friends, I've, I've said this to my successor, Schumer. Um, Senator Durbin and I came here together 34 years ago. I've told him, and of course, Patty Murray's been here since 92. They were part of my little leadership team for all these many years. And I told them what they have to do is to make sure that they are constructive in their negativity. And what I mean by that, they, they, we cannot let... Um, we cannot let this country drift away from the middle class. And with all these tax cuts, there's no question they're going to have to fight that. 
There's no question they're going to have to fight all this anti-environmental stuff. There's no question they're going to have to do everything they can to make sure we have people in America who are here and they're treated fairly. The immigration laws, they need to be fixed and they should be fixed right. So there are any number of things that they have to fight hard on. But they don't, they're not going to be the Republican and just oppose um, Republican issues just because of Republican idea. I don't think they should do that. You, you've, you've not been a, a big uh, free trader. Uh, the issue of trade is, is front and center. Uh, Donald Trump uh, tweeted the other day that he was going to put a tariff on, uh, job, on companies that move jobs uh, overseas, uh, and that has drawn some opposition from people on the Republican side. There would probably be a few Democrats who would support that, wouldn't, wouldn't there? I don't know about the 35 percent. We've we've tried to get past year after year after year um, provisions to stop people from moving their companies overseas and to make it harder when they come back. But they don't get all the tax benefits. No, we've tried to do that. So, of course, Democrats would join with that. Uh, which will be kind of an odd thing. Uh, it'll be a... Uh, it, it'll be a, a break in sort of party line votes here, wouldn't it? Well, we'll have to see what it is because it, if it's uh, as we tried to do, I think you'll get, you'll get most of the Democrats. We're going to take a short, short break and we'll finish up with Senator Reid. What, uh, Senator Reid, um, did, did Hillary Clinton make a mistake by not emphasizing? Uh, you, you mentioned middle, the middle class, and we don't want to lose the middle class. That wasn't, it was a central theme in her, in her position papers. It wasn't necessarily a central theme in, in the rhetoric of the campaign, the advertising of the campaign. Uh, was that a mistake? Let me say this. I am heartbroken over how the election turned out. I think it'll take me a long, long time to accept what has taken place, but it has. And when I was a student in college and law school, graduate school, take a test, my friends stand around, sit around, talk about that test, and I walked away from it. I had taken it. There's nothing I could do about it. That's how I feel about this election. I'm not going to rerun this election. Um, I could, in my mind, I wanted to, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. The election took place. And we lost. He won, which I will dread for many, many years of my life. I think. What about the? Uh, what impact do you think these this presidency is likely to have uh, on the country? Well, you can see with the people he is picking for cabinet spots, education. A woman who's never been to a public school. Her children have never been to a public school. She and her family own money and uh, student loans. They want it done privately. Uh, you have the Secretary of um, Health, a man who has vowed to privatize Medicare, uh, wants to do away with Planned Parenthood. Two million people went for care to Planned Parenthood last year, two, two million women. Uh, you have... Uh, looks like some kind of an auction going on for Secretary of State. I don't quite get that. So, I mean, I, we could go through the list of people he's already chosen. 
and it is quite frankly scary. Um, as you contemplate leaving here, and we, we we're talking in a week when you're going to give your your final speech uh, to the Senate. What are your what are your feelings? You've div- this this institution has been so much a part of you, and you've been so much a part of it for three decades. How is it going to feel to uh, to, to uh, leave that chamber for the last time? Well, uh, you know, I've made the decision. I'm going to look to the future. I'm not going to live in the past, and I'm going to do my very best to do that. I I have some knowledge to share with people, and I'll be happy to do that. But I'm uh, I'm not going to be a lobbyist. Um, someone asked me if I was going to be a lobbyist the day that Lander and I announced we weren't running for re-election. I said I would rather be taking a Singapore cane rather than being a lobbyist. So, <laughs> so that narrows some of the things. Hopefully, I, there's something in between. But, yeah. So you 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 think we should tolerate lobbyists? You just don't want to be one. Yeah, I, a lobbyist. I I depend on lobbyists. I found some of them to be extremely helpful to me. So what are what are you uh, considering doing? I know you're not going to Singapore to be well, I've cane. Had, so. I've had a number of offers from law firms and. I've had some individuals in Nevada and corporations in Nevada that are interested in what I uh, want to do. And when this election's over, I'm sorry, when this Congress is over, I'll make an announcement. Well, I, I want to proffer an invitation to you to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. We'd love you to come and so, inspire some of these. Too, we, co- not too cold the, Not in the spring, Senator. Yeah, not in the spring. There. Not in the spring. Um, but uh, let, let, let me finish where we started. Um, I'm the son of an immigrant, and um, I always tell this story about what be, country being a, he he was from what is now part of Ukraine. Yeah, that's my lander, my 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 lander. Yes, my father-in-law. Yes. Same same thing. Yeah, where where in the Ukraine? Western sort of Western Ukraine. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, uh is the town. Uh, and left Novgorod. during the pogroms. Novgorod. Novgorod was it his town? I see. Yeah, but, you know, he, he came here with nothing when he was 12 years old, and I became the senior advisor to the president of the United States. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to let anybody... Just like Bannon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, but I, can, I, I think about your story. I mean, so I always look back with amazement at, at how fortunate I've been. But my story is nothing compared to your story. Uh, do you ever just sit back and contemplate the journey? And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, how humble those beginnings were. You could never have imagined having been this powering, towering figure here in the city of uh Well, the, of I Washington. think stories like yours and mine, and I, they're comparable um, is an indication, I've said this before, and I, I might, might say it on Thursday, and that's this. I would hope that little boys and girls in little rural communities like Searchlight or in the great big cities where we have um, kids that are struggling to find out who they are and what they can do, I hope they would look at you and me and say to themselves, if, if those two guys can make it, I can I just really believe that. I think that we're proof that America is a pretty good country, that if a couple of people like you and me can make it, then there's no excuse anymore. You know, anymore, religion doesn't matter like it used to. Race doesn't matter like it used to. So I think that um, you and I are a pretty good example of what 
can't happen in America. Well, I can't speak for myself, but I can certainly speak about you. And uh, if nothing else, I've so enjoyed talking to you, but if nothing else, I wanted to be here to just say thank you for all these years of service to the country. Thanks, Senator. Well, we, we, we uh, helped him get elected and um, helped him get reelected. And I know that he uh, would say that um, it was his good fortune to serve when Harry Reid was uh, the leader in the Senate. So, I Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.